those of you who are part of our uh, 24-7 prayer, thank you. As of Friday morning, I'm sure we've crossed that line now, but Friday morning we had 499 people who had signed up for one hour a week of the 168 hours. We've got people in some hours praying, a number of people praying over that hour, but we're doing this as a church the entire year of 2023 where we have uh, covered each hour of each day, of each week, of each month, of the entire year with prayer, and we believe this ministry and what God's gonna do through us and in us in Calvary 2030, the vision that God has given us, it's all about God. It's all about his empowering us. This is his ministry, and we wanna be on our knees before him, taking the needs of the ministry of our families, of our community, of our world to the Lord in prayer. My prayer time is Tuesday morning. Excuse me, just a minute. I've tightened this a little too tight. I'm I'm on a leash here there, and I can move my head. Uh, My prayer time is at three in the morning on Tuesdays, and um, so I get up, and it's a time when no one will interrupt me, and it's been a special time. We've done two of those so far, those of you who are in this journey. You can still sign up. You can go online and do that, Uh, but thank you to those of you who are praying and appreciate your faithfulness, and really appreciate Pastor Brian Howard, our teaching pastor, providing us an email each week with resources and things to pray about and tips on prayer. I had one person say to me this week that uh, they wondered how they were gonna pray for an hour. They thought you know, they'd pray maybe 20, 25 minutes, and, and he said, using some of those tools Pastor Brian has given, I, when I said amen, I was surprised to find out I'd been praying for 65 minutes. So uh, just thank you. I think this is so very vital to who we are in 2023 as we launch deeper into our 2030 vision. Thank you for your heart for that. Now, if you open your Bibles to Romans chapter eight, we're gonna be looking at verses five through 11. Last week, we began a series on this chapter of scripture, Romans chapter eight, and we're looking at six grace-based promises to living in the grip of God's grace. Last week, we looked at promise number one in verses one through four, as we saw that, that opening in verse one that said, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that those of us who know Jesus have had the penalty of our sin, the judgment, the curse that hovers over all humanity removed from our lives because of Jesus. And we talked then about Promise number one, that God's grace can never be exhausted in our lives. It is the promise of unlimited grace. And today we're gonna talk about a second promise. And as I was thinking about uh, this, this perspective on God's grace, which God's grace, again, is the goodness of God in our lives that we don't deserve, I was reminded of a story in our elders meeting the other night. Our former elder chairman, uh, Rick Fusilier, was there, and he was sharing a devotional with us, and he talked about some of the story of how God has led and shaped Calvary over the years, and and he was talking about the time uh, when they were looking for a pastor, and I ended up being the pastor that God connected here. Uh, We began that discussion almost 15 years ago, and... um, the pastor, there have been three pastors in Calvary's history, our founding pastor, Larry DeWitt, who's in the room this morning, and then a pastor between Larry and I, and that pastor um, had some failure and some difficulties that uh, hurt the church and, and uh, damaged the, the witness of Christ in many ways. And so the elders, as they were looking for a pastor after that second pastor, were really trying to make sure they were thorough in their search. They didn't miss anything glaring, and so I signed away. You know, they could do financial background checks. Uh, They sat me down for three or four hours with some psychologists and therapists who analyzed every aspect of my life and 
my private life, and uh, which was okay. It was interesting, but it was okay. And, and I knew that the church had been harmed, and so they were looking to make sure they did the best screening possible. And they got a, a part of the Calvary family, a man named Ken, uh, uh, Ken Moore. And Ken and Betty had been a part of Calvary, a wonderful part of the church. Ken had a background in law enforcement security, and so they asked Ken to do a, a criminal background check on me. And they had me sign away on that. And so Ken literally got on an airplane and he flew to every county seat of every county I've lived in in my life and looked at my background. So he went to my home state of Indiana, went to South Bend, Indiana, which is the county seat of St. Joe County where I was born and raised, spent the first 18 years of my life. And he investigated me there. Then he went to uh, Raleigh County, West Virginia. I went to undergraduate school in Beckley, West Virginia. And so he went to Beckley and did a background check with me there. Then after I graduated, Leslie and I uh, ended up back in her home area, just outside D.C., and I went to seminary there in D.C. And so he investigated uh, my background in Prince George's County, Maryland. And then after seminary, we ended up in a pastorate just outside Philadelphia in the Philadelphia suburbs. So uh, Ken flew to Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and investigated my background. And then uh, the 12 years before I came to Calvary, I was in Kanawha County, West Virginia, uh, as I served as the senior pastor of Bible Center Church in Kanawha County. And so he went to Charleston, West Virginia, and did a background search on me. Now, I guess that all came back pretty clear because uh, the elders went forward and I felt God's leading. And uh, about 14 and a half years ago, I became the pastor here at Calvary and God has worked in that time. I remember when I first met Ken personally, I didn't know who it was that had to do the background search on me. And you have to know Ken, he's got this great sense of humor. And he, he was, we're meeting one another maybe four or five months after I arrived. Uh, Ken says, I'm the one who did that background check on you. And he said, I wanna tell you something. You are unambiguously and clearly the most dull and boring person I have ever investigated. <laughs> he said, unambiguously and clearly, you are the dullest and most boring person I've ever investigated. I told Leslie I was gonna open with this story and she said, you sure you wanna start your message with someone telling you you are the most boring and dull person? But he made it, he said it was so clear, it was unambiguous to him. That word unambiguous means there's, there's not a shadow of a doubt. It, it's clearly, crystal clear, unequivocally, so. And today we're gonna talk about God's unequivocal, unambiguous grace. We're gonna talk about the promise of God's unambiguous grace. And as we do that, in Romans chapter eight, verses five through 11, I want us to understand that this promise is simply this. God's grace doesn't just dramatically change your eternal address when you come to Jesus as your savior. It does that. But it also radically transforms your everyday life. We often think of salvation as the end goal of God, but it actually isn't. It's the byproduct of God's goal. God wants to walk with us and transform our lives today. And often we reduce Christianity to, I'm a Christian, so my address, as all human beings are under that condemnation that's been removed, our address under that condemnation is hell in terms of eternity. We come to faith in Jesus that our address has changed from hell to heaven, and we think that's God's grace. That's his amazing grace and mercy and love we don't deserve. And it is part of it. 
But God wants us in this life every day to experience his amazing grace that radically transforms who we are and how we live this life. We can live in this life, even with the challenges, even with our own struggles. We can live the victorious Christian life. We can live with peace and satisfaction in the midst of brokenness and pain and wrestling with our own sinfulness. And so I want us to understand the unambiguous nature of God's amazing grace. Let's look together at Ephesians chapter five, or chapter eight, verses five through 11. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh, and the flesh, by the way, is our sinful self. As human beings, since the fall of Adam and Eve, we're all broken with a bent towards sinning and selfishness. The flesh is marked, the apostle John says, by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You can boil that down to greed, lust, arrogance, or pride. All other sins flow from those things, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about the flesh. He says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, now Paul is writing in the first century to a group of believers in the city of Rome, and he says, you, however, as followers of Christ, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now last week as I mentioned 1 John 1, 9, we talked about if we confess our sins. I said that there are three class conditions in the original language in Koine Greek in which the New Testament is written. And um, the if can be taken in three different ways. And there's one of those that it speaks of a fact. It's assuming whatever is the condition is true. So it reads here, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and he does, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ, and that is true. So the idea here is, if you say, I know Christ is my Savior, but I do not have the Spirit, you can't be a follower of Christ because the moment we come to faith in Christ is the moment we are given the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, This again is assumed fact, so it's, but if Christ is in you, and he is, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Now whose righteousness? Jesus, we saw that in verses one through four, that on our account before God is the righteousness of Christ. We put our faith in Jesus. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his of his spirit who lives in you. Those last couple of verses, he's saying, physically we may be decaying and we may be getting toward the grave and we may physically die, but ultimately even our bodies will be given a new life in resurrected, glorified form like that of Christ one day. And even now, while the physical body may be dying and decaying and growing older, we can be renewed, Paul told Timothy, in, 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 or told the Corinthian believers, inside, day by day, as we walk with God, because there is life in us. When we have the Spirit of God, we have the life of God in us. 
And that's really critical and important here. See, there are two realms he talks about, the realm of the flesh, and every human being is born in this realm, and we have the condemnation of sin hovering over us, the curse of hell itself. Once we are in Christ Jesus, verse one told us, then that condemnation is removed, and we learn that we are given the permanent dwelling of the Spirit of God. And so we're not just now in the realm of the flesh, we are now in the realm of the Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells us. What's the difference? It's the life God gives us in Jesus. And before you can deal with your own lust, your own greed, your own pride, before you can find victory in life and satisfaction, even in the ups and the downs, you have to have life in Christ. How do you get life in Christ, new life in him? By coming to a realization that you were born spiritually dead, but that Jesus died, was buried, and he was raised from the dead. So your sins could be forgiven, but that you could have new life in him. And you could be picked up from the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light with the Holy Spirit within you, new life. It is the Holy Spirit who brings us that new life. And if you're here and you haven't come to faith in Christ, you are trapped in the realm of the flesh. There is no hope. To have that condemnation removed and to live a victorious life you need the life that only is offered through faith in Christ that comes as the Spirit of God comes in you. Just right where you are, acknowledge before God, I, I know God, I'm spiritually dead. I can even see the evidence of my sin in my life. I put my faith in Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised for me. Give me the new life that you offer in Christ, please. And as you do that, you experience God's saving grace. Yes, your eternal address is dramatically changed from hell to heaven. But then God wants to cause you to experience his amazing grace in your everyday life so you can have joy and peace and satisfaction and victory in him. Put your faith in Jesus if you haven't. Our pastors are in the lobby. I'll be out there. Loretta, who is up here, will be in the lobby. Any of us can help you. Our care team will be down front. Very quick and simple way. If you have questions, you want to tell us today's the day I, I received life in Christ, you can Simply text the name Jesus. Take his name, put it as the body of a text to the number 58568, the number below me on the screen. And we'll help you in walking in that new life, walking in victory. We'll answer any questions you have about what it means to know that the condemnation is removed and you have life in the spirit in Christ himself. So what do we learn about unambiguous grace in verses five through 11. And how does that affect our struggle in this life with the old lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Well, I want us to notice a couple of things here about this transformation that comes. God's unambiguous grace radically transforms, first of all, what controls my everyday life. What controls my everyday life. You see, if you go back and you look at... Uh, uh, verse, about verse eight there, verse seven, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. He's emphasizing in the flesh, when you're under the control, complete control, you have no hope because you don't have the Holy Spirit, complete control of the flesh, then, then life is miserable, it's frustrating, it leads to death. This description of our sinful flesh or our sinful heart, the scriptures say that we are depraved human beings, that even at times our, our attempts apart from Christ to do good things in the world are, are for our own good and for our own attention. 
Jeremiah the prophet said that our hearts are so desperately wicked that we can't even figure it out. Who can know how wicked they are? And you say, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. Well, check out the news sometime. See if your heart isn't stunned by what human beings do to other human beings. We talk about the human condition. We are depraved and sinful before God. The great 19th century preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in London, he was trying to describe that we're corrupt, not, not just is this just a description of us, but that's who we are in our sinfulness before we come to Jesus. Spurgeon said, it is not corrupt, referring to our, our spiritual condition, our flesh, our heart as human beings without Christ. It is not corrupt, but corruption. It is not rebellious, it is rebellion. It is not wicked, it is wickedness itself. The heart, though it be deceitful, is positively deceit. It is evil in the concrete, sin in the essence. It is the distillation, the quintessence of all things that are vile. It is not envious against God, it is envy. It is not enmity, it is actual enmity. It is not at enmity. It is actual enmity with God. Speaking of the lostness of our condition. So now as followers of Christ, there is this struggle because we are being freed from the control of the flesh, our sinful impulses, our sinful desires and the control of that, the lust, the greed, the pride, the arrogance. But we have the Spirit of God now and so there is this battle Last week I read Romans chapter seven, where the apostle Paul, great hero of the faith of the first century, acknowledges his own struggle with sin. I wanna read those verses again to you. And notice how Paul is talking about this struggle, and he's talking about it without the aspect of the Holy Spirit in his life, and then in chapter eight, he's gonna say, but by God's grace, we have the Spirit. Look at his struggle. I don't really understand myself for what for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, my flesh. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Does anybody else feel that way? When in life you're dealing with the thoughts, the behaviors related to lust and greed and pride, we can get so caught up in that stuff that as we wrestle to live our lives in such a way that others see Christ in us, it's, it, we, we can feel trapped. But notice in those verses, he never mentions God's engagement. But in chapter eight, one chapter later, as he starts to talk about the grace of God, he talks about the unambiguous grace of God, not just in changing our eternal address, but transforming our everyday lives. Now he brings in the Spirit so that we read again here in Romans eight, if you look then at verse nine, he says, you, however, you believers there at Rome are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. You, you are in a different realm. You, you still wrestle with that old flesh, and you will until you're with Jesus, but you are now in the realm of the Spirit. You don't have to live under the control of that. And so this control of my everyday life, God's grace transforms 
who it is, what it is that controls me. It used to be my flesh. Now it's the Holy Spirit. He, control, he can control me if I allow him. But sin often knots up our lives. This morning, I felt like a kindergartner. This left shoe, somehow the lace got knotted from last night's service, and it was so knotted, I worked with it for like 10 minutes, I felt like a little kid taking it to my wife. Can you help me unknot my shoe? It was so complicated, and, and she struggled, and finally, I don't know what happened to it. But there are those of you who, dealing with your own lust, dealing with the greed of this world, dealing with pride and self-centeredness, feel that knottedness. But what we have to move from is the control of the flesh to the control of the spirit, letting the spirit of God have control. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, there is this war, this battle. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. I have people who will walk up to me and they'll talk about their own spiritual walk and they'll say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm really struggling. And I say, good. They say, wait, I haven't told you what I'm struggling with. The struggle in the Christian life is actually a sign of good health. When I meet people who say, oh, Pastor, I've just given up. I'm just letting, I'm just living however I want to live and because it's just useless to try to surrender the Spirit. It's just a waste of time. I've just sort of given up. That's so sad to see people who've given up to their fleshly impulses of greed and lust and pride. But I also meet people who act like they've arrived. They never do anything wrong. They're always controlled by the Spirit, and, and, and they look like they don't have a struggle. That's a bad sign. Because while we are in this life, the flesh is always going to want to be boss, and yet we're to be yielding to the surrender and control of the Spirit of God, as Paul commanded the, the Ephesian believers to be filled with the Spirit. And so the struggle itself is so important in the growth that is needed and the change that needs to take place in our lives, the transformation of God's grace. This weekend, our nation celebrates the impact and the life of Martin Luther King Jr. and all that he did to help in the struggle of equality. And so we have a three-day weekend. Tomorrow we recognize the birthday of this man who worked so hard to bring change in our culture, in our nation. He understood that the struggle itself was a positive thing and it was a part of the change. And that's not just true nationally, but it's true of our individual lives. Martin Luther King Jr. said, change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but it comes through continuous struggle. And we've seen that in our nation in progress, that there is a struggle that comes first for change to come. He was a part of that struggle and saw that forward that continues this day. But it's true of our individual lives. If, you, if you've surrendered to the flesh and say there's no use, that's sad. Or if you say I've arrived, there's, I, I never have any trouble with the flesh anymore, oh beware. Let the one who says they stand take heed lest they fall. God's unambiguous grace radically transforms who controls my everyday life. Secondly, God's unambiguous grace radically transforms radically transforms what motivates my everyday life, what drives me, my purpose, my passion. It, it, it's radically changed 
by God's goodness and grace to me in Jesus, with the indwelling Spirit of God in my life. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, what pleases the flesh, what pleases self, what indulges the lust, the greed, the pride. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. What pleases the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, what pleases God? You see, by God's grace, we're being transformed from, from pleasing the flesh and satisfying our impulses and urges to saying, what pleases God? What pleases God? From a life being all about me and what pleases me to life being all about God and what pleases him. Some people will, will get caught up in trying to please other people. That's a dangerous thing when we become people pleasers. Deep in our heart, as the followers of Christ, it should be, what pleases my God in the end of the day? And as we talk about living and loving like Jesus, you know, it, it can be such a warm concept that we're living and loving like Jesus. And I've run into a few people who will, who will question that. Isn't that wonderful? But you know what happened to Jesus when he lived and loved like Jesus? They killed him. Because when we set out to please God and only God, sometimes that's going to cause a conflict in this world. But Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. He knows what motives are in our heart. He knows our purposes. He knows our passions and our desires. And yet I've met people who say, well, I'm just pleasing God, and then they're like a bull in a china shop at work, in their family, because they're just preaching the truth. They're just telling it like it is. They're just shooting from the hip. I'm just out to please God. And they got this chip on their shoulder they're gonna prove. And yet we know in Scripture that at the very core of all the commands of Scripture is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not just about God, but pleasing God is gonna have us focused on a relationship with other people and how we love them and care for them in our everyday lives. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 16, do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When we give of our time, our energy, our prayers, our experiences, our gifting, our talents to help other people, God is pleased. That's a part of not pleasing the flesh and pleasing God is it spills over and impacts the lives of people around us. And so you say, well, surely helping other people can never bring us to a place of conflict in our culture. Again, Jesus did that and they killed him because it threatens sometimes people who are caught up in their flesh. When you live in the spirit, it can be threatening to people who have power and are controlled by the flesh. And they're moved and their passion is to please themselves. I love doing ancestry work on ancestry.com and, and just looking at backgrounds of my own family. I've gone back generations for both Leslie and I and even other people in my life and just kind of a side hobby. And I enjoy learning the history as you do that and you find these different things about history as you go. And as I was doing Leslie's, I, I got all the way back into the 1500s in England and I came across her 13th times great grandfather and grandmother 
William and Catherine Allen. William was a miller, which meant he ground uh, you know, grain resources, in his case corn, and to a point where they were grounding and they were making cornmeal and other things, and, and um, he would, of course, sell that. That's how he made his living as a miller. And, um, but when he ran into poor people, he would, even, he would charge them less than others, or he would just give it to them. Because he believed as a follower of Jesus, pleasing God was caring for the physical needs of other people who were hurting. But he would also, while he would provide them the basics to make bread and to survive in life, he would provide them the word of God. He'd share the scriptures with them. Well, in 1557, uh, the Queen of England, Queen Mary, had kind of gotten with the official church and and she had created a persecution against anyone who didn't follow the church. And so William and Catherine Allen, along with five others who were caring for people and helping people, were brought on trial. And the church kept the official record of the dialogue of this trial, kind of like the, the era of the Inquisition. And so he's being questioned as to why he would care for the poor to help them get food, why he would care for other people to share with them the scriptures. And, and he talked about how he was just trying to please God and do what God wanted him to do as a child of God and as he's being led by the Spirit to help other people. And it's incredible to watch church leaders, official church leaders say to him, you see, those poor people are poor because God is judging them. How dare you provide for them and remove the judgment of God? How, how dare you give them the scriptures when they should be hopeless without the scriptures because of who they are? God is somehow judging them. Those of us who are wealthy and have power, we have the blessing of God. They have the curse of God. What are you doing? And he argued back and read scriptures and spoke to them. And he, he said, this is what we should be doing as the followers of Christ. We should be loving our neighbors. And it, it, the, the, the record is kept. It's even recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And both William and Catherine and the five others who work with them and help them in this ministry of sharing bread and sharing the word of God were judged to be heretics for what they were doing. And in Maidstone, Kent, England, on June 18, 1557, Leslie's 13th times great-grandfather and great-grandmother were burned at the stake along with five others for lovingly caring for the poor and sharing the word of God with them. And when you read that transcript of that trial, it, it's ridiculous. And yet their heart's desire was to please God, not man. Living in the realm of the spirit, not in the realm of the flesh. Someday, I hope, we'll visit that spot. If you go to Maidstone, Kent, England, uh, there is a plaque there on the street where they think it's about that area, and it says seven persons were burnt for their faith in 1557 near this spot. In the transcript, William Allen quotes Psalm 1914 that says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Hear the basic cry of the psalmist's heart, and this is what William Allen expressed in that, that trial. He said, all I'm trying to do with, with my life is the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart is to please my God. 
You see, God's unambiguous grace radically transforms what motivates us. We were once motivated by the flesh, the greed, the lust, the pride, but we're freed from that. And by God's goodness and grace, we're liberated. We have the Spirit of God who frees us not to please our flesh, but to please our Creator and our Redeemer. If you're a follower of Christ, can I encourage you to take Psalm 19:14 and pray it back to God each day, this week, each morning? See, because this is the most basic thing. The words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of my heart, may they be pleasing to you. If the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart would be pleasing to the Lord, I guarantee you our relationships at work, in the neighborhood, at home, with friends, or with relatives, in the church, would be stronger. I guarantee you if the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts were to please God, our behaviors, our relationships, our actions, our interactions, our attitudes would be radically different. Take Psalm 1914 and pray it back to the Lord time and time again this week, each morning as you get up. You see, unambiguous, radical grace transforms what controls my everyday life from my sinful flesh to the Holy Spirit, what motivates my everyday life from a life being lived all about me and what pleases me to a life being all about God and what pleases him. Thirdly, the promise of unambiguous grace radically transforms what defines my everyday life. I've already hinted at this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But it's described here, even in verse six, the mind governed by the flesh is death, defeat, frustration. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace and victory. If you read verses 10 and 11, it speaks of the same thing, that the resurrection life changes everything, releases us from the curse of death. So what defines my everyday life as I'm transformed by God's radical goodness and mercy toward me that I don't deserve is I move from a life of emptiness and defeat and frustration when I'm motivated to please myself and I'm controlled by the old flesh to empowerment, victory, and satisfaction as my heart's desire is to please God and to be controlled by his spirit within me. It's this contrast of emptiness, defeat, and frustration to empowerment, victory, and satisfaction as the seven martyrs of Kent were being burned at the stake. They were singing hymns to God, seeking even in death to be pleasing to him and to find him to be their satisfaction no matter what life brought them. We sang that new song, Worthy of My Song. In it it said, from blessing or cursing, we will praise you. Excuse me, from blessing or breaking, we will praise you, we will worship you. It's the idea of in the high moments and the low moments, we will please God. We will give God control. And when we do, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, there will be deep empowerment, deep satisfaction and victory. That's where the victorious Christian life is realized. See, God's grace doesn't just dramatically change your eternal address. That's wonderful. But it radically transforms your everyday life by releasing you from the control of the flesh and allowing you to be surrendered to the Spirit, by releasing you from just pleasing yourself to pleasing God and defining you not by the emptiness and the death and destruction and frustration of the flesh, but the life 
and empowerment and victory of the Spirit. So how do you experience God's radical, transforming, unambiguous grace in your life every day? Number one, give your life over to the Holy Spirit every day. Surrender to him. Each day you wake up, pray Psalm 1914 and say, may the Spirit of God control my thoughts, my words, my actions, my desires, my attitudes, every aspect of who I am. Give your life over to the Holy Spirit every day. You say, well, won't that just make me one of those people who are just rude and crude in our society? Again, it doesn't happen that way. When you are surrendered to God, you have this relationship surrendered, then it flows into your everyday relationships. That's again why Martin Luther King Jr. said, every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. Surrender your life to the Holy Spirit every day. Secondly, pursue what pleases God every day. Not what pleases your lust, your greed, your pride, your flesh, but what pleases God. Walk in obedience to his word, to his commands, to who he is so that you can live and love like Jesus every day. Leo Tolstoy said, if you want to be happy, try only to please God, not people. Who are you trying to please? Yourself, others? Or are you trying to please God? Pursue what pleases God every day. Thirdly, walk in the power, victory, and satisfaction of the Spirit every day. How do you walk in that power, that victory, that satisfaction? You give the Holy Spirit control, not your flesh. You seek to please God, not to please yourself or others. I like how Beth Moore kind of summarizes what we do with our flesh or the Spirit in this struggle that we face. She says, this is author and Bible teacher Beth Moore, she says, any day not surrendered to the Spirit of God will likely be lived in the flesh. So let's be a people who surrenders to the control of the Spirit, seeking to please God so that we can experience the satisfaction God has for us. This is a part of the unambiguous grace of God. This is God's grace, not only dramatically changing our eternal address from hell to heaven, but radically transforming our lives by who it is and what it is that controls us, what motivates us, and what shapes our lives and our satisfaction. Be surrendered to the Spirit of God each day this week. Father, take your word May it penetrate our hearts. May the Spirit of God himself show us those areas where we're not surrendering. I pray for those who struggle with sins and patterns of sin. They feel like their lives are knotted up. Thank you for Paul's own expression of struggle. But Father, may we realize, as Paul describes then in chapter eight, there is freedom from that knotted up mess. We can be liberated by God's grace from the control of the flesh. We can be liberated from just pleasing ourselves or others. We can experience victory no matter what our circumstances are. Father, I pray for those who've just been comfortably existing in the flesh. I pray that you bring conviction in those areas they need convicted. Show them the way in which they need to live. Give them the example of Christ in a fresh and vital way. 
Father, may we be a church that in the world around us is radically distinct, not because we're bowls in a china shop, but because we are a people surrendered to the Spirit of God, seeking to please our God, and seeking the satisfaction that comes from Him and Him alone. Be glorified in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.